I have many moments of doubt. Let's hear about them all. <laughs> I got time. Um, so say, for example, when we uh, started this podcast. So I first came and asked you about, would you like to host this podcast? This yeah. is a topic that I'm really passionate about. Yeah. And when I called you, I said, I said, Aditi, will you host this podcast? And and we're going to look for a journalist to be your co-host. Yeah? <laughs> Someone who is an expert in this issue. And uh, background, by this time I had been researching it for, you know, like six months at least. <laughs> six to eight months. Yeah, yeah, bringing it up at bars and coffee shops and parties. Yeah. Everywhere <laughs> I went. And uh, and you said, why don't you host it? And, and I said, oh, but I can't do that. I'm not qualified to do that. <laughs> And you Jesus. said, I'm not qualified to friggin' take up oxygen. But guess what? <laughs> guess what? And you said, that's bullshit. And, and I realized at that moment that you had called me out on, on uh, undermining myself when I was pitching a program about us not <laughs> undermining ourselves. <laughs> and you, you said to me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you out on this every day. Throughout the entire yeah. podcast until you say you you know that you can do it because you do know this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because you know what? Actually, before that, if you remember before our conversation, you had sent me like a three-pager with all this information. <laughs> and like, I'm telling you like 20 minutes before our phone call, I just finished. I remember I was at like 11 o'clock in the morning show and then I had a two o'clock in the afternoon phone call with you. And so I finished my show. I was in Edinburgh and then I'm walking back and I'm looking at this email and I'm like, dude, this woman has already done all the work. Like, why, what are we going to do in the podcast if everything's here already? <laughs> and because uh, you had like episodes written out, Christina, you had episodes written out. So I don't don't even dare try to fuck around with me and be like, I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, and you know, and partly also, I think like when I was having that conversation with you, and then you were like, I will find somebody who's a gender expert. <laughs> and uh, you know what? Here's the thing: the truth is, like even when you said it to me, and then. I was looking at the scope of the work that we had to do and it was very complicated and it was very like, it was a lot more, I mean, academic reading than I had done in the past 10 years, right? <laughs> and so I was like, oh God, I'm screwed. Um, and I kept just, I kept wanting to justify to myself. I said, oh my God, like, how do I justify this? That, oh, Aditi started another feminist thing. Oh God, Aditi, how typical. <laughs> and so I tried to justify this to myself. And I remember asking you to justify it to me so I could justify it to myself. <laughs> and it was that voice inside my head that was asking me those questions like, why Aditi? Why do you want to do this? Why do they want you to do it? You know, is this important enough? They'll say that you've sank further into the pits of feminism. <laughs> so what are you going to do? Um, and I realized that voice is a combination of like the voice of my mom, the voice of, you know, uh, the internet, <laughs> the voice of, uh, you know, my friends, the voice of my colleagues. Um, that sort of amalgamates into a voice that becomes the one in my head that keeps telling me I'm not good enough. Yeah. Is there a name for that? There is. What? Yes. <laughs> imposter syndrome. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Wait, uh, imposter syndrome. Okay, and can, can, what is imposter what syndrome? Is well, it's something that I think we all suffer from in some degree, and it's good to have a name for it. Yeah. Which is basically that nagging voice inside your head that tells you that you aren't good enough. Imposter syndrome is a more female phenomenon, am I correct in assuming? For sure, for sure. Like there's definitely men, there's definitely men that suffer from imposter syndrome, absolutely. Uh, but I think it's widely recognized as something that plagues women. A lot of that uh, is, 
you know, we're just, we're, we're socialized to be perfect, to be accommodating, yeah. to seek approval. Always. Yeah. Every situation, you're the peacekeeper or the, like, especially when it's a mixed gender situation. Yeah. Or, or say when you have to, if you're at work and you have to give a presentation, you're thinking, gosh, they're really going to know that I'm not that good. You know, and actually the first time I learned the, the term imposter syndrome, okay, I was very shocked. Because I thought that these feelings of being, you know, this person who's not gonna, like, who's not good enough, were my own. Like, I thought I was this unique fucked up flower that, <laughs> that only I have these messed up feelings in my head. And when I heard it, when I heard that it has a name, I couldn't believe it. The voice in my head exploded. Suddenly it had a new vocabulary to be like, oh, Aditi, maybe, okay, maybe, maybe you need to calm down. Maybe, you know, your 10 years of doing stand-up Counts for something, huh, Aditi? <laughs> Maybe this is imposter syndrome. Yeah. Because my voice, the voice inside my head has more terms for the things I have thought and has a vocabulary for these for these feelings that I've had, which I thought I was all alone in having, but surely I am not, um, has helped me become kinder to myself. And that in turn has helped me project myself more with more strength and with more clarity and with more openness uh, than... I would allow myself earlier. I love hearing that. That's no, great. It's true. It's true. And today we're very excited to talk to a uh, guest that I certainly idolize, uh, Deepa Narayan, and she's going to tell us more about how we can understand that voice inside our heads. Here we go. <laughs> So excited to be able to chat with you, read your book and uh, absolutely, I mean, absolutely eye-opening and uh, mouth-shutting, frankly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Don't get you. <laughs> <laughs> One of those where it leaves you stunned with silence. So Deepa is a former senior advisor to the World Bank and recipient of many awards. She's also given a brilliant TED Talk that we recommend everybody check out. So, Deepa, first question I want to hear is, can you tell me about the process for creating Chup? I wanted to understand the roots, cultural roots of abuse. And what I read didn't satisfy me. And I came upon, I thought of, you know, how do I address it? Because culture is such a huge topic. And so when I started getting invitations to speak about poverty, I said I want to have an interactive sex session with uh, students, and this was St. Stephen's College. I had the, I, the question I think that's brilliant that I stumbled on, I don't know how these things happen, is what does it mean to be a good man or a good woman to you today, personal? Or what does it mean to be a good girl and or a good boy? And I was so stunned by the answers of the young men, smart, and the young women, very, very smart, that they, their definitions were sounding like my mother's definitions, not mine. And so I didn't know what to make of it, but I started talking to people and I said, there's something here. And so then I went to another college and another college. So I trained up uh, six women and they did interviews in different parts of Delhi and it grew from there. We ended up doing 600 interviews. They were often three to four hours, sometimes days long. 
uh, in Delhi, some in Bombay, Ahmedabad and Bangalore and I also went to Madhya Pradesh. We also did lots of interviews in the rural areas but they're not included in this book because I only wanted to focus on the middle and upper classes, educated, often working, middle and upper classes so that there's no escape clause in denial of our own reality. Uh, you've emphasized that, you know, you are you are speaking on this middle and upper middle class. Why is it that you say that this, this middle class needs so much addressing? Because we think uh, we are already gender equal. Oh, because we wear the veneer. We wear the clothes we wear the of veneer. gender equality. We talk the lingo. We believe in gender equality. We read the newspapers. And so when someone is in denial, that's when it's hardest to change. Literally, and that's why I decided to focus on younger women because I was interviewing older women as well. And I said, if I interview older women, they'll say, ye to parane generation ki baat hai. We young people have changed. And if I interview, if I include poor women, and I did... I spent two years traveling in rural areas, especially talking to women in self-help groups. Women would say, or people would say, oh, hi, this is poor people's problem. What does, what does Chup mean when it comes to how girls are, learn, uh, are trained to speak or not speak? From uh, 8,000 pages of notes and 600 interviews and 1,800 hours of listening, it took a while to make sense of it, and I'm good at detecting patterns, right? So what is the core of what's coming through? And the core thesis that came through sort of beyond unpacking patriarchy really is mm -hmm. that we're still raising girls to minimize their existence, to shrink themselves, to become invisible. Yeah, and you, I mean, and we've heard Chup in so many very, like I, I've been told Chup in the, most ridiculous. I remember once we were doing uh, the national anthem, and uh, I was, I think, I don't know what, what moment it was, and we were doing the, the national anthem, and I was singing. Mm -hmm. And I think my voice was either louder or more off key <laughs> than everybody else. But the, the principal literally came on the mic and she was like, Aditi, chup. And I was the only one suddenly like, Dravede, oh. just halfway through. But there have been so many places that, right, I mean, right. I don't know, conversely in English, right. I'm sure you've been told to pipe down or be quiet so many times, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's all of these behaviors that even though I've been in India for 10 years, I was raised somewhere else, we have all of these behaviors anywhere in the world. I mean, yeah. girls are subsequently taught, right, that, uh, you know, just to be quieter and, you know, to not be laughing out loud and playing out loud and playing aggressively. So I think it happens everywhere in the world. And people are very embarrassed sometimes if you laugh loudly yeah. or if you're having a lot of fun. Yeah. I've been told even as a woman at my age saying, shh, calm down. Keep quiet. Oh, and of course, nothing <laughs> makes me more calm than someone telling me to calm down. Um, <laughs> um, and, I, and that, you, I mean, you're saying is it, it, it ties in directly with the idea of us having to be quiet, to be smaller, to be invisible. Absolutely, because this whole thing is the way women are trained and girls are raised is to fit into a particular image, a form of womanhood that props up a particular definition of womanhood, manhood, which is the men holding the power. And so if there's such a difference in power, you're, you're not meant to have any power. And he has all the power, even though when they don't, even when men don't recognize it and see it, 
then of course when you're in the presence of that power, you behave differently because at a deep level, your existence, your survival, your thrival depends on whether that power is benevolent or not. Yeah. I mean, are there any particular instances from your own life uh, where you saw yourself? Like I know there were several instances in the book where you turned around and you were like, I didn't know this was something that I had been conditioned into. Um, and are there any particular instances of things like chup um, that you felt that you turned around and you suddenly went, holy, I've been conditioned into this. Mm. This is an addiction that I didn't know I had. I think it's uh, linked to pleasing. So if you have a voice, women, most women, we tend from very young age to calibrate, to change. So we're always thinking of the other and how far can I go before this person may abandon me or reject me or slap me or be aggressive towards me. And so that uh, shows up as pleasing behavior and also deference to men. And my most embarrassing moment was about 10 years ago when I'd been on holiday with my husband. And I said, you know, very nicely, you know, I want to make half the decision. So why don't we, you make, you decide every other day which hotel. We hadn't made any reservation to it and I'll do it. It's simple enough. So he would do it in two minutes. And I would agonize all hours. You know, cheap hotel made and I expensive. We must stay in a nice place. And then I would asking him, what do you want? And he's a reasonable man. So he said, but it's your decision. day to yeah. make a decision. And then I would keep, keep on in indirect ways. And finally he said, in the US, the cheapest is Motel 6. <laughs> <laughs> so we ended up in the shitty hotel. And then I did it again. I wanted to go out for dinner. And he was tired. And I knew he was tired. And yet I asked him, do you want to go out for dinner? Why didn't I say, why couldn't I say, I want to go out for dinner. I know you're tired. Let's go out for dinner. And I would really appreciate it if you would go for dinner. I didn't. Like an idiot, I'm saying, would you like to go out for dinner? And he says, no. And <laughs> he went to bed. <laughs> so then I was stuck with two terrible decisions. And I'm the one who's supposed to be, you know, so altogether and so highly educated, talking about women's empowerment. And in my own life, I could see that, my God, I'm still caught in this deep learning to be a good, learnt behavior or habit of pleasing men yeah. or deference to men to be nice. And this was such a harmless, harmless but I wanted him to take responsibility. So the shadow side of this is I, then I can blame him. Oh, girl. <laughs> <laughs> How is it that we are trained to not be able to have preferences? Mm, that's a very good question. Let me give you a simple example of this woman, Ginny, who's 25, who said, when I was five, wherever I used to go, and an auntie or an uncle, never an uncle, an auntie would ask, what do you want to drink? She, she liked cook. So this is not about liking cook or not liking cook. So her mother tells her, that's this is a very shameful thing for you to do. You don't ask. So she stopped asking. So if we just example, if we just analyze this very simple example, what is she being, what is she being taught? What is she learning? 
she is learning that to ask for what she wants is shameful. Yeah. And that you as a little girl should make let other people other adults make decisions for you. So that means that any time you ask clearly for what you want you should be slapped down and if you raise like that in very subtle ways and these are all loving parents that's why you have to keep coming back to these are loving parents who are reproducing the culture that they learned so if you don't have preferences we come back to my behavior on you know is restaurant mein jaye us restaurant mein jaye or or this hotel or that hotel if you don't have strong preferences how can you make decisions there's no basis for making decisions because the world is a blob you're trying to guess you know how to please him or her and so you can't make decisions if you can't make decisions you cannot initiate action right even the simple action to let's drive this way yeah. to this restaurant and don't take 5 hours to decide what you want <laughs> <laughs> These are all simple everyday decisions and we become afraid to make them not because we're stupid but be- because we're afraid we might offend someone or we might make the wrong decision. Now men say well I'm afraid too. That may be true for individual men but what I'm talking about is the systematic training of women to be in a certain way and it's true that some women escape and some men have these problems but it's a system that trains women to be this way because it holds up society it doesn't create trouble we say let's empower women and we have women leaders but if you've been telling a woman to shut up to keep quiet not to argue not to be angry not to make decisions stay confused and don't initiate action how is she going to show up as a leader you can talk all about leadership you can talk all about ambition is no longer a dirty word but it's not going to change because the internal coding is fighting her external desires and because the most important part of this and you'll hear this a lot is that because we don't talk about it each woman thinks she's alone and each woman thinks it's a personal defect it's her personal fault that she feels this way and she can't make decisions so what would you do if you're ashamed and you feel you're defective you'll hide and because we hide and don't talk about it we don't change so it's very simple that if we start talking about these things there's a huge possibility of change and women supporting each other and men understanding why women behave this way and rather than laughing at it or making fun of it saying it's training because they also have been trained in a particular way and so that fit we need to break that fit so men have more space to be you know gentle kind artists whatever they want to be and women have space to have their voices heard and have their presence felt this inability to make decisions um and, and of course to have your desires labeled as something that is shame inducing how does that translate into the work environment you think oh it's very simple <clears throat> the reason why women's women don't get promotions and women's salaries are uh, there's a pay gap etc is because women don't speak up 
but it's a double-edged sword. One, women don't speak up and ask for salaries as often as men do, and there's data on this. But secondly, when women speak up, they're considered ag aggressive and not likable. So you're trapped both ways. If you speak up, you're aggressive. If you don't speak up, you're not noticed and you become invisible. Deepa, in your book, you talk a lot about how women are trained to not be able to have anger or show anger or actually, frankly, any negative emotion yeah. besides maybe crying discreetly in the corner. Okay. <laughs> no, that's beautiful. When you can like pretty cry, when you've just got a film of tears on your on your eyes and they're like, like this, they one has, the oh, this one has emotions, but not too many emotions. But and hopefully in the corner where only the camera can see you do it. Yes. So you're one So I think that's really interesting because one thing you discuss about how we're trained to not actually even being able to recognize that, hey, that feeling is anger. Exactly. Because we actually aren't even, from from being a young girl, you're, you are raised to not be able to be angry, yeah. right? And what is ironic that you point out in the book is that even women, we are the very, we're supposedly the very emotionally literate ones. We're the ones who, you know, take care of the emotional side of things. But what you say, in fact, in the book is that that inability to recognize things like anger means that women become very emotionally illiterate. illiterate. Isn't that an irony that we are supposed to be the emotional experts and emotional saviors and salves in the world, heal everyone's wound? <laughs> and be the Mother Teresa and, uh, and all things good. It all comes back to pleasing, right? You have to be nice, you have to be smiling, you have to be pleasant, and that automatically means you can never be angry. One guy ex exa explained the difference between his mother and his father the following way. He said, my father, is a very rational, reasonable man. I can debate with him and we have arguments and we yell and scream. My mother, he loved her, but he dismissed her as being uh, superstitious, spiritual and quiet. But then he went on to say and he said, she's a shock absorber. And I thought that was really profound because she is the one who stands there and takes all the blows. Because if she has an opinion and if she speaks up, who's going to be the peacemaker in the house? So I thought that, you know, sometimes in these little turns of phrases, there's so much wisdom that you can unpack the whole culture and how habits form and why they form so deeply. And unless we address them directly, we're not going to be able to disentangle them. When I was younger, and sometimes even now in, in my own very deep, intimate relationships with my husband or daughter, if I haven't been, I feel I haven't been heard or I've been treated unfairly, instead of going to anger, it's easier for women to cry. So it's tears of frustration, tears of, this is too much for me or I've reached my end, so it's a substitute. Tears are allowed, but anger is not. So we really have to understand that. It's rage that's rolling, but the only expression we have is tears. One thing that's interesting when we talk about anger, part of when you work outside of the home or work in the gig economy 
from inside your home, either way, is that inherent in this kind of work involves negotiation. Mm-hmm. Negotiation involves conflict. Conflict involves some kind of argument, right? And if we are always trained to avoid that, then even though if you're at work, it should be an external conflict, right? Like negotiating about what project we should be doing or what episodes we are doing or something like that. That's external, it's not personal. But if women are trained to please, then going to work becomes, like any of that conflict becomes personal. Yeah. And one thing I found really interesting that you talked about was at women who are in the workforce, right? Let's talk about say office situations is that when they're in more junior positions, they'll rise, 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 because you're a good girl, you're doing what your manager has told you, you're sticking, you know, you're doing everything on time, da-da-da. But then once you start to get into even like a semi-leadership role, like even mid-level leadership, that's going to involve some conflict. Like you're going to have to negotiate, what are we doing, what's the budget? Yeah, manage a team of people that, Manage a team, tell someone where they need to improve. Right? Stuff like that. And so that results in girls actually plateauing in the workforce. So even if you are, let's say we have a lot more girls coming out of school and they're doing well, if that translates into the workforce, if you're not able, if you're socially not trained to have conflict, you're only going to go to a certain level. Yeah. Because conflict is necessary. Right. I think the two things happening here. One, of course, is the way the world perceives them, how the male leadership perceives them. That's a big part of it. So it's not just about blaming women. And the second part is that women are not comfortable with power. So the more power they get, they want it. And I can talk from my personal experience. We want it, but then you don't know how to deal with it. This is not... Because women are defective, it's because women have been trained this way. And so all this empowerment leadership training that I see is not really effective because we're not dealing with the core. I went through negotiation training. Do you think anything would stick? No, because my deep training to be nice and to be liked is much stronger than knowing that I should take a, I shouldn't have a position, I should focus on interests, etc. But if you're not supposed to exist, how can you negotiate? Right? It violates the entire agreement or morality. And we have to keep coming back to morality. Because it's not just, if it was just behavior, like uh, should you walk down street A or street B, it's innocuous, you do it. But these are not innocuous changes because they're linked with a deep, deep sense of trained morality and what it means to be good and not good. So I think the question is how do we change? Right? And schools have to change. But the teachers have to change. It's not enough educating the kids because if the teachers are scolding the girls for having a loud mouth, for making trouble, but not the boys, then it's being reinforced all over again, right? So we've got all the language, but I think the HR departments of many of these large corporations could really benefit from understanding why women behave the way they behave and then teach negotiation. So it's on a cultural, they understand the cultural premises that will seep in and use that cultural framing to to train women that it's okay to negotiate. You're not being a bad person if you negotiate. And those skills will then transfer into all walks of life. And we can teach girls how to negotiate because we haven't been taught that. We haven't been taught how to ask cleanly for what we want. 
And so we don't know how to do it cleanly. Occasionally it comes out and sometimes it doesn't. But to keep our emotions in check, emotions in check, not to be angry, but to ask, even when we're frightened, you still ask. And then those neurons change. And once you change one habit, the next one, you can move on to the next one. So take any piece of this unwinding and change one habit, for like for you, to not, to not tamper your, to not dampen your passion when you speak, when you're in comedy. Yeah. Would be powerful message for all women. I love it when you aren't sure. <laughs> Honestly, reading Chup has been, I, f I felt better. <laughs> like I'm it was so genuinely a bomb. I was like, oh, oh you know, oh, it's, I'm not completely crazy. I'm 70% crazy. You're systematically crazy. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. Thanks, society. Thanks. Laughter is a good medicine. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you, you need to keep going. <laughs> and then if we can see this, you know, we're not defective. It's not our fault. We can laugh about it because, hey, it's the truth. And now what? Right? Now what? We can change individually, but it's even better. I keep coming back to is change in a group. Change with your friends and colleagues and, and partners. And learn to speak your truth without blame and shame. Deepa, I think that's Feelings. a perfect thing for our final segment in each podcast is do one thing, which is one thing that listeners can do after we've talked about all of this. What is the one thing that they can do, and I think what you're describing is a beautiful thing for that. The other thing that really, really makes a difference is getting girls and women involved in sports. Yeah. Physical, sweaty sports changes life without preaching, without teaching anything, because as women, as your bodies get stronger, you come and you start inhabiting and occupying your bodies, you start living in your bodies, and from that confidence, the world starts looking completely different. And there are studies, there are longitudinal studies done in the U.S., which shows that a huge difference between girls who play sports and girls who don't, including uh, going on to college, getting better grades, not getting pregnant, use of contraceptive, delayed marriage. So if this one magic pill to change the world, I would say... Uh, get girls and women, it's never too late, into playing hot, sweaty sports. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Christina, not the kind of hot, sweaty sport that you're thinking, Christina. <laughs> <laughs> women in Labor is made by Christina McGilvery, Laura Quinn, Aditi Mittal, Manya Sachdeva, Sonakshi Chowdhury, Nandita Gupta, Sonali Thakkar, Ipti Patnaik, Rose Higgins, Porva Jassi, Regina Hawkins, Kashish Sethi, and Priyanka Verma. This podcast is generously supported by a grant from the American Center New Delhi. The opinions, findings, and conclusions stated are those of women in labor and do not necessarily reflect those of the United States Department of State. For more information on the podcast, visit womeninlabor.com or search Women in Labor on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. 